Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Star Trek Prodigy just wrapped up its stellar first season, and today we are joined by none other than Dr. Erin McDonald to talk about her role in guiding the science behind the show, creating journeys for the young scientists in the show, and guests starring in its season finale as a Starfleet science officer herself. In case you're new here, Dr. Aaron is a writer, producer, and the official science consultant for the Star Trek universe with a PhD in astrophysics and is an esteemed science communicator whom I greatly look up to. She's been on this show numerous times before, but this one is probably my favorite conversation with her so far. Stick around to find out why. Dr. Aaron McDonald, or should I say Lieutenant Commander Aaron McDonald? <laughs> Welcome back to Strange New Worlds. Thank you so much. That's the only thing I respond to now. <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant Commander it is. <laughs> uh. I'm kidding. Call me Aaron. But yes, it's uh, it's amazing. I freaking love it. <laughs> yeah, I know. That must be a dream come true. But uh, we'll get to that in due course. So um, I'm really excited to have you on board Strange New Worlds again. It's always an honor. And uh, This time to talk about the first season of Star Trek Prodigy and a surprise appearance of yours at the end of the season. But before we get to that, I want to spotlight your new children's book called Star Trek, My First Book of Space. So uh, this book was published in October 2022. And I remember when we saw each other at uh, the Star Trek Mission Chicago convention last April, you mentioned to me that these were the hardest sentences that you've (laughs) ever written. And I know that you've also written a PhD dissertation in relativistic astrophysics. So Aaron, (laughs) what made this book so hard to write? Uh, What made it so hard to write is that the target audience is zero to two. and, (laughs) And there's a hard page limit of like, 11 sentences, (laughs) which I would challenge anyone who has written a PhD dissertation with a pretty much open-ended page count, if I do say so, um, to try to condense teaching space science to that amount of sentences and words (laughs) for that target audience. (laughs) Every single thing that went into that book was meticulously thought through, revised, It was fun, but it was a challenge. It was a good challenge. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I bet. I mean, with uh, such a small page count, such a small word count, you really have to pick and choose things. And I'm sure you couldn't squeeze all of your favorite things into the book. Uh, But I love the way that it kind of starts out with us here on Earth and then zooms out into the cosmos, almost taking the reader on a journey deeper and deeper into space. So how did you land on this concept for the book and what to include inside of it? You know, for me, teaching what we call the cosmological address, which is what you just described, this idea that we're on Earth in a solar system in a Milky Way galaxy within the universe, 
that's not something that really embeds itself in people's minds. You know, when we learn astronomy as kids, you typically just learn about the solar system. And most children's books are just focused on the solar system, which is fine. There's plenty of stuff there. But just then seeing that even bigger picture, I think is so important to get in at an early age and giving that address style, that zoom out feel, I think is something that is easy for most kids to wrap their heads around. They understand that concept of starting small and getting bigger. And so that was how I wanted to structure this book was to go beyond the solar system and create the structure around that cosmological address. Yeah, yeah. And I love all of the um, Star Trek bits that are in the book, too. Every single amazing image of space is also accompanied with a, a little illustration of a starship or something like that. You even have a reference to um, coffee in a nebula. <laughs> that must have been fun to write. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was really important for us, even though it was Star Trek, my first book of space, that the words themselves were real. Like there was real science in there. Uh, even though we have some references to Star Trek, as you said. And so I think the line is, you know, some people think there's coffee in a nebula, but <laughs> <laughs> it's really just dust and gas. Yeah. And yeah, as you said, too, kind of further driving that point home by having real images of space superimposed with cartoons of starships, I think is like one of those subtle ways to kind of say there's reality and then there's the fiction side of it. And both can coexist we're trying to delineate between the two. Ooh, I really like that. I didn't think about that as I was paging through the book, um, but that's a really cool way to make that distinction visually between what is real and what is not. And I can imagine, you know, you could have paired up with a 3D graphic artist to make the starships look super, super real. But then there's that sort of ambiguity between what is actually real and what's actually out there in space. Yeah, or exactly. what's actually not real. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> what's what's waiting for us in the future? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, so something that really caught my eye was how the book ends with questions. And so the second to last spread is about dark matter and ends with the words, we don't know what dark matter is, do you? And the final page has an illustration of the Enterprise heading out into deep space and simply reads, would you like to continue the adventure to both? go into space. So tell me about the decision to end this book open-endedly with these questions rather than answers. Yeah, I think what's so cool is when you kind of meet kids who are super into science and they're just starting to discover that that's something that people do, you know, they study space or they study these unknown things. When you do outreach for kids, a big epiphany that you can see happen in real time is when they realize that there's stuff out there that we still don't know and that there are still outstanding questions for humanity. And as scientists, you get to try to answer those questions like, what is dark matter? And we had a really kind of funny conversation as we were making the book, myself and Rob Perlman, who wrote the companion book, Star Trek, My First Book of Colors. You know, we were kind of going through my book because he writes a lot more of these than I do and kind of discussing it. And he, you know, he doesn't have a science background. And he was just like, well, you know, what else can we say about dark matter? Like, you know, we should try to clarify it more. I'm like, 
Rob, no, like we literally don't know. Like <laughs> we, we, we literally don't know what dark matter is. We, we know it's there, as we say in the book, but we don't know what it is. And so even adults don't realize how much is still unknown about space. And so being able to plant that seeds in kids, you know, kids are naturally scientists. They are experimenters. They are learning about the world around them. And then to then expand that in their mind to realize that there are adults out there who are asking those questions and trying to answer them and that they too could be part of that process in the future, I think is a really fun part of science communication when you make that connection for them. Yeah. Uh, and I just wanted you to know that I did buy a copy of this book for a colleague at work who recently had a kid. So you are already influencing and inspiring and planting lots of curiosity seeds in many new minds. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, that means a lot. And, you know, I have some friends with kids, too, who are, you know, even though it's a board book, which is like a baby board book, I have friends whose kids are kind of like five to seven, you know, kindergarten through second or third grade, who also really like this book because they're learning how to read and there are some decent sized words in there and like nebula, right? That might be the first time a kid reads that word. And so really it's a book for all ages, not just for babies. And, uh, and I think especially kids who are just starting to learn about space can, can uh, get a lot of excitement for reading it themselves. Oh, yeah, definitely all ages, because I had a blast <laughs> paging through the book before I handed it off to my friend. <laughs> um, so now on to the main event, Star Trek Prodigy Season 1. Um, Prodigy is such a great series, Aaron. Each episode, you know, is just so fun to watch, very charming. And most of them have this really great uh, life lesson embedded within them, which I, I feel is is super cool. Um, I think this show is going to raise a whole generation of thoughtful and kind-hearted and courageous Trekkies. And Aaron, as somebody who's contributed to the show in numerous ways, you must be so proud of what you've delivered in season one. Thank you. Prodigy lives really, really close to my heart. And I think, as you could probably tell from our previous discussion, that you know, science communication and education for kids is something that is very close to me. And so with Prodigy, having the opportunity to not just get the science right, which is my role on all of the Star Trek shows, but then to embed STEM education into that as well was just an exciting opportunity. And yeah, to really help shape those characters that could inspire future scientists. It's yeah, it's a very touching, beautiful, heartwarming show. And the Hageman brothers really put something special together. Uh, and speaking of science education, I know you've been putting out a series of videos detailing the science of Star Trek Prodigy. These are super excellent productions, and I really enjoyed them and encourage our listeners to go seek them out. And I'll put some links to them in our show notes. One thing I love about them, in addition to your presence, is the really helpful animations that they have. Um, Aaron, tell us a little bit about putting together this series of educational videos with the Star Trek team. Yeah, so we released, uh, I think it's five videos in the back half of Prodigy. So they kind of correspond to episode 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, and 20. No, that's too many. <laughs> anyway, the last <laughs> there's five to go with the last half of the season. And, mm -hmm. and different little science aspects that were in there. So things like metamorphosis, uh, things like wormholes, and, and things that the kids would have seen but are really targeted to do more of a behind the scenes science and really for a younger audience. You know, the rule is don't, don't ever read comments, but I can't help myself. And some <laughs> people are like, this is like 
a kid level why can't it be an adult level i'm like well it's a kid level <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> that was that was the intent um no but it was really you know credit to kind of the paramount and uh social media team really amazing group of people they're the same ones that kind of bring the ready room to life and all of these other behind the scenes segments and yeah you can watch these on uh, i think star trek.com is available internationally and then on youtube uh within the u.s at least on the paramount channel and if you just search dr aaron prodigy they'll they'll pop up and uh yeah you know the graphics team did a great job about making that connection and what's so wonderful as someone who's done this sort of science of sci-fi for a long time being able to work with the official licensing team to show these videos and to show clips and make those direct connections. You know, I hope more people get to see them. I hope kids will, you know, start to investigate and learn a little bit of science and whether they come to it through YouTube or whether they come to it through Prodigy, I think there's some really kind of cool, fun science in there. Absolutely. I don't want to have you to rehash too many of the concepts that you talk about in those excellent videos, but of course, I can't help but ask about the USS Protostar and its protodrive. <laughs> so um, as the science advisor, you're probably the most knowledgeable person on the planet when it comes to warp drive. <laughs> thank you, uh, and, thank you. And so in Star Trek Prodigy, our, our hero ship is capable of something that's even faster than warp. It's got this protostar drive. Aaron, would you tell us what is a protostar and how does a protostar drive work? Yeah, so this was conceptualized before I came into Prodigy, where they kind of had the bigger outlines thought of and and they came to me and said, you know, we want this drive. It's experimental. It's an NX class ship and the drive is going to be able to go faster than warp. And so there's some extra technology in that. And oh, by the way, it's going to be a literal protostar <laughs> in the ship. Um, so scientifically, a protostar is basically the early stages of star formation, where you start with a dust gas cloud and it starts to kind of coalesce, collapse under its own gravity. It picks up more and more kind of a snowball effect as the gravity starts to grow. It acquires more particles, which makes it heavier, which acquires more particles. And then it reaches a point where, you know, the density and the friction within the star start to heat up. It starts to heat up. It starts to get really heavy and eventually will create fusion. And that's where the hydrogen fuses into helium which creates energy, and that's the birth of that star. So the stage right before that happens is what we call a protostar. But it's important to remember that like fusion isn't actually happening, but you still have a dense ball of gas that's probably pretty hot. It's just not giving off the radiation particles that you get from fusion. Uh, so we've never seen one that's as small <laughs> as the engine <laughs> of a protostar. But the idea kind of where we layered on the science of how something like that would work, I think we came up with something pretty cool, which was this idea, you know, when a star is formed, it has this equilibrium, which is a balance between the gravitational pressure. So the weight of it bearing down on itself being counterbalanced by the radiation pushing out mm -hmm. so you have it kind of collapsing in and then the radiation holding it up and that radiation that's holding it up is really you know where the light the radiation all the heat that we get from a star comes from and so i was thinking well 
okay, if you have a protostar that's right on the verge of being born as it is, you're kind of near that point of equilibrium, right? You, you have that gravity, but the radiation isn't quite pushing out. But when it does, when it does fuse, then you are going to get a burst of radiation and a burst of energy. So to take a step back, we talk about warp drive. Warp drive is fueled by matter-antimatter particles colliding, which give off energy. Mm-hmm. And that fuels the warp core, which is able to bend space-time around the ship. A way that I saw the how you could go faster is if you are at warp, you then bend space-time even more and build a wormhole surrounding your warp bubble as your shortcut. So you're literally like building a shortcut through space as you're traveling at warp. So there's a lot of layers there. <laughs> oh, no, I, I really appreciate all that the, the details <laughs> yeah. there because uh, one question that I had was that, okay, so as you said, warp drive is fueled by matter-antimatter reactions, which is already very, very efficient, right? It liberates a ton of energy. To use the power of a star, which does nuclear fusion, as you described, seemed like taking a step backwards in technology. I mean, I don't <laughs> yeah. think a fusion as as powerful as matter-antimatter reactions, but what you just said about how you layer it on top of warp drive, this is something extra to warp drive, makes so much sense to me. Yeah, and it's a little bit more controllable because they can engage the protostar, and then the way I would imagine scientifically the protostar being brought online is that it literally starts compressing that star together, you know, which mm. is going to essentially enact fusion. So we're on the verge of it not really being a protostar anymore, but uh, that fusion starts giving off supplemental energy. And then when you're done using it, you kind of relax the pressure and it goes back to this protostar state. Um, very unstable. I have not done the simulations to see if that is at all feasible to create a star <laughs> and then decreate a star, at least yeah. at least from fusion reactions. But um, but it's a cool concept and it, mm-hmm. it does rely on some backbone of science. And so I do really like how they were able to kind of come up with this idea and then we were able to put this scientific background into it and it kind of works it's a new form of sci-fi travel yeah and something that really appeals to me about this protostar drive too is as you said you would compress it but then you would decompress it after you exited protostar drive and it's almost like a renewable fuel you know like matter antimatter reactions are probably not a renewable fuel but it seems like starfleet is moving towards a more quote-unquote greener energy source here (laughs) with the protostar drive because you recycle the the, 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 the yeah Right, right. Yeah, exactly. All you would need is just to kind of get more gas, right? Get more hydrogen or whatever is if if you're really burning through that protostar. Um, like you said, you're creating helium, but it's essentially, yeah, you, you only do as many fusion reactions as you need, and then you can kind of step back from it. It's cool. It's fun. <laughs> I really like the proto drive. <laughs> <laughs> I love how the proto drive and the proto star's name is so apt. I mean, the ship literally has a proto star fueling it, but it's also carrying a bunch of very talented teenagers who can also be thought of as proto stars themselves. So yeah. <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> oh, they're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so. 
I want to turn now to uh, episode three of Prodigy, which is wonderfully titled Starstruck. In yes. this episode, the crew encounters this beautiful site, a binary star system where a white dwarf star is stripping away gas from a red giant. It's beautiful. What exactly am I looking at? Your course has led us into a binary system where the gravitational pull of an orbiting white dwarf is in the final moments of tearing apart a red giant. A dying star. What a rare and exciting way to meet our doom. And I loved this scene because it shows uh, just a gorgeous depiction of a real-life astrophysical phenomenon. So, Aaron, could you walk us through what's happening here? What is a white dwarf? What is a red giant? And what happens when they meet like this? Yeah, so this is actually a pretty common phenomena, as you said. You know, this is something that we do see in space science. Uh, a white dwarf is essentially the remnants of a average star when it reaches the end of its life. So we talked about that radiation pressure and the gravitational collapse that you deal with. When a star kind of runs out of fuel, it doesn't really have that radiation pressure pushing out. And if it's not super heavy then it's not going to collapse in on itself as extreme as some of the heavier stars do. And the outer layers will just kind of slough off. Like that equilibrium kind of disappears and the, the outer layers slough off. And what's left behind is this hot white core that we call a white dwarf. And then a red giant is that stage right before that happens. So through most of its life, a star is fusing hydrogen into helium. And that is the majority of its life. That's, you know, 95 or so percent of its lifetime is going through that process. Once it uses up all the hydrogen, which again is the most abundant thing. So that's why it spends most of its life in that stage. It starts to fuse helium into carbon and then potentially heavier and heavier elements, depending on the weight of it. Um, once it starts fusing that helium, it starts to expand. Again, the whole processes and the equilibrium are changing. Its temperature slightly changes and it expands to become a red giant. Our star will go through that approximately another 4 billion years and it will expand out to about the radius of where Earth is. So it's going to get really, really, really big. So what you're seeing in these white dwarf red giant star systems the reason we see these companions so often together is that binary stars typically form from the same cloud that, you know, I talked about hydrogen and all this dust and gas starting to coalesce. Well, you can imagine maybe there's one snowball that forms at the same time. There's another snowball that forms and sometimes they will merge together, but sometimes they will create their own entities depending on how far away they are and the density profile of that cloud. And then you end up with a binary star system but they're not going to be perfectly identical stars. You're going to have one that's maybe a little heavier than the other, or maybe the one that ignited before the other one or any of all of that combination. And so one essentially dies before the other one does. One becomes a white dwarf and you have this red giant that are orbiting each other. And what happens is that white dwarf is a little bit denser compared to the red giant. The red giant is continuing to expand. And so those outer layers are not as tightly bound and they have this gravitational object that could favor them over the parent star itself. And so these outer layers start to fall onto the white dwarf and then eventually it adds so much mass that it almost ignites itself. Like it's, you're just creating so much more mass that it 
it goes through its own supernova. It explodes, basically. It gets so much more mass in on itself. And these are processes that are still being studied and tested. And We can only see what the universe gives us, right? But if people have heard of the term a type 1a supernova, that is that process. That is a white dwarf exploding because it has acquired so much mass off of a red giant. And that deep, deep scientific explanation is what the kids find themselves encountering <laughs> in episode three. And, and if I may, just for a second, one thing I love about episode three is, you know, we had this sort of action-packed, fun, kickoff, welcome to Prodigy part one and two. And then it kind of is like, boom, you're watching Star Trek. Like here is a highly <laughs> scientific phenomenon and the kids have to solve their way out of it. <laughs> and it's really good. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I mean, yeah, like you said, these are really phenomenal types of star systems that are really important to our knowledge of astrophysics in the universe. But I mean, like, I've never seen one of these up close and to see that through the eyes of these kids, I was filled with just as much wonder as they were, you know, like, oh my gosh, yeah, this is so amazing. Um, I think these type 1a supernovae, if I'm not mistaken, were also very instrumental in trying to gauge cosmic distances and eventually leading us to understand that the universe is expanding. Do I have that right? Uh, yeah, they were part of that, uh, again, puzzle piece gathering because the processes that led to the type 1a supernova are fairly well understood. And so you're able to get a lot of information from the star system based on that. And there is some level of standardization, right? That you have a white dwarf when it reaches a mass amount, it will do X. And so when we see X at that particular brightness, we know how bright it should be. And then we see how bright it is here. And that allows us to gauge that distance. So yeah, it is one of those really good, they call them in astronomy standard candles, but it's basically like a ruler, a light that we know how bright it should be. And so when we see how bright it is, that tells us how far away it is. So, yeah, astronomy rules. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the most touching episodes of the season for me was episode eight titled oh. Time Amok. <laughs> In this episode, episode, yeah, the ship basically traverses a tachyon storm, and the result is that each individual crew member experiences time at a different pace. For Jenkin Pog, time sped up a lot. For Rock Talks, time slowed way down. Ah, there you are. I see you've adjusted your temporal oh. settings. And I see you figured out time phases. Talk to me. Once I realized the warp core was damaged, I deduced the only way to restore gravitational balance was to reroute power from the primary warp drive directly to the proto-drive using a warp matrix, which I'm currently creating. I like it. A warp matrix will normalize our time component and stabilize these fractures. And better yet, save everyone. But to know how much time I have, I need one piece of data. Huh? Was Rock's time faster or slower than mine? Slower. Much slower. Fascinating. We're trapped in oscillating time. Time works like a damped sine wave. Those closest to the blast are most affected in alternating patterns, fastest and slowest, then faster and slower, then fast and slow. Jankum was closest to the proto-drive, so he was the fastest. Rock was next in line, so she was the slowest. That means... I don't have nearly enough time. Aaron, as a doctor of space-time yourself, what is ex what is going on here? <laughs> I love that episode. Time Amok is, I think, one of the greatest 
time episodes of Star Trek ever. Like, it's so good. And yeah, the way you described it is perfect. And essentially, the science behind it is so deep. Again, just, you know, credit to the writers for coming up with this idea that you have this effect that happens that is a damped sine wave. That's how it's affecting them. So essentially, this tachyon storm interacts with the protocore, which disrupts the time field around them. If you're close to it, you get a more extreme effect. The further away is a less extreme effect, but that effect could be a speed up or a slowdown. It is the first, and I think to this date, only time I've seen a graph in a script, which is impressive, <laughs> <laughs> to try to convey what's happening. So so you are, the, the writers, independent of yourself, wrote into the script a graph, and and then you had to fill in that graph? Is that how that worked? Basically, they understood they wanted it to be this effect that, yeah, Jankum would be faster, Rock would be slower, the next person would be faster, but a little less so than Jankum, and then slower, but a little less slow than Rock Talk. And I think I contributed the term damped sine wave, because that's what it was. <laughs> of course you would, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, it's a damped sine wave. And I'm like, oh, good. Okay. <laughs> that's a good way to describe it. But yeah, conceptually coming up with that idea was was absolutely the writers it's it's so cool and so smart and it's funny because one of the criticisms that i got as the science person for the show was that rock talk the space around her moved slowly right so like when she mm. would drop something it would kind of take a while to fall and this is true if you're experiencing time dilation you would not notice it like that everything mm. around you that's why we call it relativity, right? Relatively, you would still see things at the same pace that you would expect them to. However, it is still a kid's show. And it's also a show for people who don't know about relativity and time dilation. And you have to convey that somehow. And so that's the best way that we can convey time is going slower for rock talk. And so that that's just the best way to do it. And so I stand by that. That's one of those choices where you favor story over science so it can be conveyed well to the audience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this episode is just really amazing for for so many reasons, the science behind it, the storytelling. If I'm not mistaken, it's also the episode in which Rock Talk begins her arc of falling in love with science and becoming a science officer. So at first, at the beginning of this episode, Rock doesn't really see herself as a scientist at all. She sort of shies away from the task of having to repair the protodrive and feeling like it's well beyond her capabilities. But when she's stuck in that super slowed time frame, she begins to sort of teach herself how to solve problems, uh, bringing hologram Janeway back online and eventually, you know, through trial and error, creating the warp matrix and the voice that was inside of her head saying that I can't, I can't, I can't do this became a voice that said, yeah, I really love science. And so, Aaron, I thought, you know, this was such a beautiful arc of a young scientist. I'm sure you must have played such a, a big role, not just being an advisor for scientific facts, but also an advisor for how scientists, people develop and grow into science. Um, so tell me a little bit about crafting Rock Talk's journey as a young scientist. Yeah, that was a big part of my first meeting on Prodigy was the writer staff and the showrunners sitting me down and asking me about my own journey. 
Mm. And, you know, what was it like for you as a kid who wanted to get into science? How old were you? What were the things that excited you? What were the things that, you know, made it difficult? You know, and so a lot of, at least I'd like to think that a lot of me, (laughs) little me, went into developing Rock Talk because they really wanted to make it a relatable, true journey that I think a lot of kids at that age could see themselves as Rock Talk you know, and, and go through their own journey together. And so one thing I love is, like you said, you know, she kind of has to discover that through necessity that she feels, you know, in a more extreme way with her background, that she has to be a fighter. She has, you know, she, she fights back so much against being the security officer. (laughs) And she's like, that's not what I like. That's not what I want to do. Everyone makes me do this. Mm -hmm. And then realizing that she kind of enjoys the problem solving not necessarily engineering itself, but she has learned a lot. She finds an affinity for it. And then she spends kind of the back half of the season trial and error with other scientific disciplines, which I think is just such a fun journey. One of my favorite lines of rocks is when she analyzes the cloud when they're on the away planet, you know, and she's like, Oh, these are these kind of clouds and there's going to be a storm coming in X amount of time. And then the storm comes when she didn't predict it. And she's like, meteorology isn't an exact science. She's <laughs> like, <laughs> like, maybe I, maybe meteorology isn't cut out, you know, for me, but mm. I think that, you know, not everyone is drawn to particular sciences and you find that you enjoy the process of the scientific method and problem solving. And as we said at the top, learning that there's more to learn out there, but then you still go through the secondary process of trying to figure out what science excites you and what you have an affinity for. I love that um, you poured so much of your own backstory and sort of experience navigating uh, the scientific world into Rock Talk. And that explains so much about why Rock Talk is my favorite character on Prodigy. (laughs) (laughs) Now I know why. Um, I mean, did you yourself, Aaron, sort of, um, you know, maybe when you were younger, think that instead of being an astrophysicist, you wanted to be a meteorologist or a biologist or a geologist or something else? Did other sciences strike your fancy? And did you learn through trial and error the same way that certain ones weren't exactly up your alley? Uh, Yeah, pretty much. Um, So I wanted to become a scientist because of Dana Scully. Um, I've I've shared that before. And, uh, you know, she was a medical scientist she's a doctor and so I tried studying biology and I was okay at it but I really found once I discovered that you could just study space I was torn between the two I would say I was like I kind of wanted to be a biologist I had set myself down that path but then I was finding an affinity for physics and astronomy And like so many people experience, some of it came to the teachers that I had at that formative time of being mid-high school, having a not-so-great biology teacher and a really good physics teacher can make all the difference. And, um, And then I still didn't totally write off biology, but my freshman year of my undergraduate, I had a professor who, uh, I think she was my, she was my honors mentor. I was in the honors program and she was a biologist and she tried to recruit me. And so I ended up going on this like biology trip during the summer after my freshman year of college. And I have this distinct, and I remember sharing this story with a prodigy room as well. I have this distinct memory of 
taking observations in the field. I think I was like doing soil samples of different biomes. And I was like, I walked into a spider web and a praying mantis jumped onto my face and I'm knee deep in mud. And I'm like, I hate this. I hate everything about this. <laughs> like biology is not for, and I just remember so distinctly at that moment being like, nope, definitely not a biologist. Like mm-hmm. this is not for me. I don't enjoy this. I'm getting no joy from this. And that is done. And I closed the chapter on that and fully focused my energy on astronomy. So yeah, there's, I definitely relate to that that journey of of self discovery. And but I think the trial and error is a is an important part of the process. Now, this also reminds me of one of my favorite scenes uh, of Rock Talk doing this sort of trial and error. It's the episode where they're trying to escape the self-destructing Federation space station, and they have to jump through space and, <laughs> and try to hit the protostar. And they, they ask Rock Talk to do the orbital mechanics calculations, and she starts to do all of these equations in her head. And then they jump, and they just barely miss the protostar. <laughs> uh, and then at the end, Rock Talk says, ah, orbital mechanics isn't for me. And I'm just like... Are you kidding me? You made it like within a hair's breadth of the protostar that was moving <laughs> in space. Like orbital mechanics is your jam. Like that is a hard calculation to do. That was pretty good. And, yeah. and she still could have been perfectly right had the station not exploded because that was another variable that added thrust. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh my goodness. I'm just thinking back to my planetary dynamics class and how hard that was and how like, oh my gosh, if you were on the spot right then and your life was on the line she got it pretty much you know spot on so (laughs) i remember talking about that episode i really really love that moment for rock talk i remember talking about that with the room because they were trying to figure out like what area of science that would be you know i think they just had kind of a placeholder in there i'm like no like that like orbital mechanics is literally its own field like it is Mm -hmm. so hard it is so (laughs) difficult that it is a specialization in its own right and you can absolutely say orbital mechanics is maybe not my thing mm-hmm, <laughs> Which, mm-hmm. like you said the ability to do what she did in that time it has absolutely not closed the door to her but maybe she just doesn't like it <laughs> right exactly yeah totally <laughs> yeah doesn't like and i can relate to that too as soon as you start to see the amount of variables that you have to account for and you go no no I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. That textbook that I remember had like an equation that lasted for like more than one page. You had to like flip the page to get to the end of the equation. I'm just like, this is enough. I'm I'm good. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I distinctly remember that as well. Uh trying to do that homework in orbital mechanics and having like three lines of one equation and trying to make it clear what I was doing. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I do not so, miss yeah. that. <laughs> we are all bowing down to Rock Talk and her abilities. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So in episode 15, titled Masquerade, Dal finds out his origins, that he's a genetic augment. And with the help of a geneticist named Dr. Jago, he unleashes his full potential, which ends up going haywire. You know, he grows tellurite tusks and Klingon brow ridges and Andorian antennae, and basically nearly gets the crew captured by Romulans. But in the end, all is well, and science officer Rock Chalk reports. If there's anything we learned while visiting Nova Isle, it's that science rules and science needs rules. And it's our imperfections that make us who we are. (laughs) Science rules, but science needs rules. And I think that most kids, most adults even, probably 
don't think about this idea every day that science needs rules. So yeah, tell us about this uh, life lesson that came from this particular episode. Yeah, before I get into that, I want to shout out uh, some help that we got on that episode from Professor Mohammed Noor, who's been a d- oh. guest on your your show before and on mm-hmm. his YouTube channel, BioTrekkie Explains. He has a great video explaining that episode of Prodigy. So if people are interested, hear it from the biologist, not from me. <laughs> and you can check that out. Um, but yeah, I really like that lesson in that episode because we talk so much about how kids are natural scientists, but you know, when kids start really genuinely learning science in school, one of the first things they learn is the scientific method and to some extent ethics as well. And I know for people who work particularly in the biological sciences, taking ethics as part of your lab experiments is like a big part of what you have to train as a scientist. And just the idea that science needs rules. I like that for multiple reasons, not just the ethics side of it, But it starts to implant the idea that scientists are following a prescribed set, that they're, you know, there's always going to be bias in science, but we try as hard as possible to remove that. And when you live in the society that we live in now, where there's a lot of anti-science rhetoric out there that people think scientists have an agenda, that they are, you know, malicious in some way trying to drive home that like, no, they're true, good, ethical scientists are following rules and there's peer review and there is, you know, you try to remove that agenda as much as possible and good scientists will see through that. And so I think that it goes a little step further from just discussing ethics to start implanting the importance of science as its own field and how you try to be a professional scientist by following rules, you know, and yeah, it's, a, I think it's a really deep episode. <laughs> it's a really, mm-hmm. it's a really smart episode for addressing that. And, you know, like you said, especially the first half of this, of the season, you start to see these kids and they learn about the rules of Starfleet prime directive and all these other things, but then taking it a little step deeper into talking about the ethics of scientific, you know, <laughs> uh, experimentation is, is a really heavy topic. And I'm glad that they address that. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, Aaron, before we turn to that special cameo appearance in the Prodigy finale, is there anything else science-y from season one of Star Trek Prodigy that you think I should have asked you about or that you're particularly proud of and want to share? (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple things. Uh, One was when uh, Murph eats the photon grenade. (laughs) 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 Because... uh, as goofy and as indestructible as Murph is, uh, we did have a lot of debate about that because I think that might be the first time that we've, you know, I've talked about the science of photon grenades before, that they're essentially nuclear bombs because <laughs> mm. if they are an explosion that is releasing photons, then yeah. that's high radiation particles and it's probably a nuclear bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and I think uh, in that line, Rock Talk is like uh, talks about the gamma radiation that comes out of the photon torpedo, and I think that was the first time that's ever been directly associated, which was kind of exciting. Mm, <laughs> and, nice. Um, likewise, I don't remember the language exactly, but uh, when they discover the transporter and they start playing with that, they really explicitly say, "Break down your particles, move them, rebuild them," mm-hmm. which was cool. 
the language around how the holodeck works. I think when Rock Talk explains, they were like, well, how did we not like run into each other? And, you know, she's like the fading fields and the localized motion. So what was really fun about Prodigy is that we were able to put in very clear canon descriptions that people have seen from like the technical manual or some of the behind the scenes stuff. But just because we were introducing Star Trek to a brand new, (laughs) the next generation, um, we were able to say like, this is a photon torpedo. This is how the transporter works. This is how the holodeck works. And so that was really cool to kind of dig that up and explain it as clearly as possible. And then I personally really love in that episode, we were just discussing uh, that they have the space elevator. Oh, right. That they go up in. And one of the cool things is that as you'll notice as they are going up the space elevator, the atmosphere does start to disappear. And that when the shield, when the glass around the space elevator shatters, it shatters out uh, because of the air pressure on the inside being higher than it is on the outside. So those little, little details are really cool, really fun. (laughs) Definitely. And very much appreciated. I can definitely see you authoring a uh, technical manual for Star Trek Prodigy. <laughs> That's actually something that I missed from like the good old days of the 90s shows, these tech manuals that would come out. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a market probably out there for them. At least I know I would buy them. So <laughs> I would love to write a technical manual for this era of Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put that out there. Let's put that out there. I would love, Great. I would love, love to do that. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Okay, so the time has come to discuss your (laughs) surprise appearance at uh, the season one finale of Star Trek Prodigy. You voice a Starfleet science officer, Lieutenant Commander McDonald. And um, I just need to know how this came about. Tell me the story of how you got to voice yourself, essentially, (laughs) (laughs) in Star Trek Prodigy. I, oh gosh, this has been so long in the works and I'm so deeply, deeply honored and touched that the Hagemans, Kevin and Dan, included me in that moment. And essentially what it was, was as they were shaping the finale, the idea was, is that Rock Talk would meet someone at Starfleet Academy. Everyone's kind of having their own journey you know jenkins meeting with the engineers they all are exploring starfleet and they had the idea they were like well there's only one person that rock should meet and that's dr aaron you know (laughs) (laughs) that makes that arc kind of full circle you know of being able to have her meet the person that put a lot of herself into rock talk <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's very i get very emotional talking about it because it really it meant a lot like it meant a lot obviously it's like the goal of every nerd ever to, <laughs> to play <laughs> themselves in star trek yeah but then to just have that layer of being able to have like a literal moment between myself and rock talk is so cool you know to get a little more emotional i'm gonna try not to cry um you know when i left academia one of the hardest things for me was i felt like i was removing myself from being able to be a mentor to future generations uh especially as a younger woman in the field you know i felt like upcoming students would see themselves in me and Mm -hmm. i never had that and so i wanted to be able to give that and so when i decided that 
staying in academia and working at universities wasn't for me. I really, that was something I had to like say goodbye to, you know, was that opportunity to mentor people. And so I've gone on a weird journey (laughs) in my career. (laughs) And that's something that's always been at the forefront of my mind is still being able to inspire kids. And especially with Prodigy, a lot of my life has come full circle through Prodigy. I got through graduate school from watching Janeway. (laughs) And my PhD thesis is dedicated to Captain Janeway. Um, Mm -hmm. just says, you know, I couldn't have done this without her. And then to be able to write lines for Captain Janeway and then to be able to tell stories, working on Prodigy was really the epiphany that I had of going like, oh no, like I'm not meant to become Dana Scully. I'm not meant to become Captain Janeway. I'm meant to create the characters that then inspire kids to become scientists. And that's what led me down the path you know, two and a half, three years ago, almost of, yeah, geez, so Christ, it's 2023, (laughs) three years ago (laughs) to, um, to start screenwriting and to start writing those characters and to direct my professional career in that. And so, yeah, to really be able to be that character in that moment, to talk to rock talk, I feel like it's all kind of come full circle and it's really nice and it's really touching. And I cannot thank Kevin and Dan enough for giving me that opportunity with rock talk. Cause it means a lot. It means the world. Oh my goodness. That is such a touching story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, it's so cool to see, I mean, this show is all about kids trying to find their way in the universe and understand who they are and who they're meant to be and what they're capable of. And that behind the scenes, one of the people producing the show is also finding that out about herself through working on the show and, you know, telling these stories of these characters is just so amazing. So yeah. yeah. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. It's really cool. And I'm a Lieutenant Commander. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Did you have any choice in rank? Why didn't you make yourself (laughs) captain? (laughs) I did not. That was a fun surprise. Um, And uh, one thing I love too, is that, uh, you know, for years, Before I even worked on Star Trek, I have had a Starfleet Academy faculty member license plate frame, (laughs) like on my my car. This is perfect. (laughs) And it's true now. (laughs) Like it is the the most accurate now Mm -hmm. that it could ever be is that I'm literally a Starfleet Academy faculty member. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So good. Just incredible. Thank you. So in in this scene where you are talking to Rock Talk, um, basically you encourage Rock Talk to pursue a career in xenobiology because of her great affinity for Murph. You seem rather adept with Murph. Have you ever considered becoming a xenobiologist? Xenobiologist? What's that? It's the study of new life forms. Should I infer that you are a professor of xenobiology or are you also an astrophysicist uh, at Starfleet Academy? <laughs> That's a good question. I think, you know, even though most science officers in Star Trek are like jacks of all trade, <laughs> yeah. I would say I definitely fall under the astrophysics category. But I do, as anyone who is a science teacher or a professor at any point in their life, you can see when people have an affinity towards certain sciences, even though it mm-hmm. might not be your own. So. I would definitely say you can see a kid who is taking meticulous notes on Murph's 
development and and uh, say, you know, this is this is something you should pursue. And it was actually a funny little behind the scenes thing with that is that, you know, Rock Talk was starting to figure out all these different fields of biology or of science. And the reason we called it xenobiology as opposed to exobiology, which it could at this stage of our humanity could really go either way, uh, mm-hmm. although people tend to favor exobiology. We wanted it to be xenobiology because the idea was she was going alphabetically <laughs> through sciences oh. and hadn't, hadn't got to xenobiology yet. <laughs> yeah. So, Well, if it were called astrobiology, she would have found it right away. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, But I do think that there's something poignant in that, right? That it's like, yeah. and that was my own journey, too, is that all these random things are what send you down that path of whatever science you go down. And it. It can be as random as like, I just didn't make it through the alphabet yet. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you'll be able to answer this last question of mine, but um, (laughs) can we expect to see more of Lieutenant Commander McDonald in future seasons of Star Trek Prodigy? I would love that. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, <laughs> we're going to go. Well, because there was Dr. Aaron was also mentioned briefly by Shax, muffled with all the other ones in Lord X. That's so we're creating right. a Lieutenant Commander Dr. Aaron McDonald multiverse of Star Trek right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. I got it. That's, that's really good. So those two characters are definitely the same character thousand percent yeah perfect okay yeah. great i love it <laughs> <laughs> and i think i think aaron waltke who's one of the writers as well did confirm that someone did ask him directly on twitter and i think he was like yeah and in my mind i would say the same thing so i'm not the only one who's going around thinking that <laughs> <laughs> right well you know whatever you say is canon right so Thank i mean you. that's that's what the job is <laughs> yeah um so Aaron, thank you so much for being back on Strange New Worlds. It's always a joy and an honor to have you on board. Um, I want to give you this opportunity to plug any upcoming projects that you think our audience would be interested in knowing about. Yeah, thank you. Um, I currently have a brand new podcast launched this year called Scientific Characters that explores kind of the lives of famous and not so famous um, scientists throughout history. Just short episodes that's something that's always fascinated me is that intersection of science and history and some of the people that are mostly forgotten out there. Um, so people can feel free to check that out. Uh, it's just a little podcast, like 10 to 20 minute episodes. Nothing is as expansive or as cool as this podcast is because this podcast is amazing. Um, (laughs) and, uh, but yeah, that's called scientific characters. Uh, I'm still working on star Trek, so that's great. So make sure to tune into all of the new seasons that are coming our way. And I am also continuing to produce films. So I will have a new project that is being announced probably in the next couple months um, that I hope people check out as well. But I'm not going to say anything until then. Just keep okay. an eye. And people can find me on Instagram now. I'm not really on Twitter anymore. It's at Dr. Aaron Mac, D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C. Perfect. Okay, great. I'm definitely going to follow your Instagram account and subscribe to Scientific Characters. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks again for having me. This was fun. This conversation with Dr. Aaron McDonald was such a heartwarming reminder of how making Star Trek, like doing science, is a human endeavor. It's a project that touches the lives of not only its viewers like myself, but its creators as well. 
Aaron's journey from the ivory tower of academia to the writer's rooms of Hollywood was highly successful, but as she explained, it wasn't always easy. I know a lot of scientists who have switched from doing research to engaging in a career in science communication. But leaving the academy really weighs upon your soul, especially if you're from a historically underrepresented minority in your field. It's like you're giving up on the dream of being the change that you wanted to see. But hearing Erin tell her story of how working on Star Trek Prodigy helped her realize that her true calling was to influence a whole new generation of young scientists in a different way, that she wasn't meant to be Captain Janeway, but rather the force behind creating Janeway's story and the stories of countless other inspirational characters made me realize that our dreams are allowed to change as they grow up with us. Kind of like Murph's metamorphosis, you know? We should grant our dreams the possibility of exceeding our very own imaginations. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review us on your podcast app, or simply tell your friends about your favorite Science of Star Trek podcast. You can follow this show on Twitter at Science of Trek and myself at MikeWai, M-I-Q-U-A-I. And a quick programming note before I warp away. February 2023 is going to be a super busy month of science for me. I may not be able to produce any new episodes of Strange New Worlds until March. However, I do plan on participating in the virtual TrekCon lineup February 16 through 20, which you can watch for free on YouTube. Special shout out to Professor Mohammed Noor for inviting me to that. Just Google Virtual TrekCon to learn more. Until next time, see you out there.